Well, it's really my honor to be here. We have been here many times over the years, and so I've gotten to know some of you, although I've never seen this many of you in one room at the same time. What a, a wonderful occasion, and uh, we have been coming to Colorado Springs, you know, on and off for, for many years as Barb and uh, Roy, who went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, uh, my wonderful parents-in-law, uh, retired here in 2005, and my wife's sister and her family also live here, and they're even sitting right here in the front row, so good on them. So we've had many reasons to come to Colorado Springs. It's a wonderful place to come and to, to live for all of you and to, to worship with you many times and to hear Pastor Lance preach. And thank you for, for loving Barb and, and before that Roy so well. And Barb greatly misses you. And she has chosen wisely to come to Colorado Springs in the summer in North Carolina over some of the winter months. So it was very thoughtful of her and we love having her with us. And I know she loves being here. I have chosen a rather odd text not only for a grand occasion like this, dedicating this new building, this wonderful facility, did such a great job renovating this warehouse, but to be honest, really an odd text for any occasion. (laughs) I want us to look at some unsung heroes of the faith. You know A-listers like Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, Paul, and then B-list, C-list. These are not even on the list, but they should be. We're going to look this morning at some characters from the Old Testament you may have never heard of, and I imagine most of you have never thought of, the daughters of Zelophehad. Now, if nothing else, before you say, great, why did you choose this text, at least your curiosity should be piqued how in the world Will he bring this around to a building dedication? So hang with me here. You really should know about the daughters of Zelophehad. Deborah, the judge, is a well-known character in the Bible. She only appears in two chapters, Judges 4 and 5. Hannah, another well-known woman in the Bible, only appears in two chapters, 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Most of you, if you've been around the church, have probably heard of Lydia. She shows up in just two verses in Acts 16. Maybe you've heard of Tabitha. She's in two verses in Acts 9. Or Susanna, and I just mentioned them because they're both my children, Tabitha and Susanna. Susanna shows up just once in Luke chapter 8. But did you know that the daughters of Zelophehad are mentioned five times in the Old Testament? They're mentioned in Numbers 26, Numbers 27, Numbers 36, Joshua 17, and 1 Chronicles 7. And in all but the last passage, the five daughters are actually mentioned by name. Think about it. We do not know the name of Noah's wife or Lot's wife. We do not know the name of the Canaanite woman who came up with great faith to Jesus in Matthew 15. We do not know the name of the bleeding woman in Luke 8. We do not know the name of the woman at the well in John 4, but we are told four times the names of these five daughters of Zelophehad. And the better part of two chapters in the book of Numbers deal with them and their request. So I want us to think together, what 
could possibly be so important about these daughters? Why are they given such a prominent place in the history of God's people in the Pentateuch? And what difference does any of this make for us or have to do with an occasion like this morning? I hope you have a Bible with you and you can open it or turn it on. And I want us to look at the two passages where they are dealt with most detailed, and that is in Numbers 27 and Numbers 36. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book in the Bible, toward the beginning. Two separate sections. We'll read first from Numbers 27, the first 11 verses. We read, Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. Bonus points if there's a name of any daughters here. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord and the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. He had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no sons? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them, and you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it, and it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule as the Lord commanded Moses. So here is the first incident with the daughters of Zelophehad making their request. Our father had no sons, and we should receive then the inheritance. We'll come back to explain what that's all about. Turn several chapters later to the end of Numbers, chapter 36. There is a second occasion where their daughters of Zelophehad approach the leaders with a question. So we read Numbers 36. It's a slightly different but related issue. The heads of the father's houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the father's houses of the people of Israel. They said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel, and my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. And Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right. 
This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses, for Mala, Tirzah, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. So, what is this all about? In order to understand what's happening here in these chapters and then to relate it to something in our lives, we need to understand how the story relates to the promise of land, how the story relates to the rest of the book of Numbers, and how the story relates to the Pentateuch. So that's what we're going to try to understand. So first, relative to the land, then in relationship to the whole book of Numbers, and then in relationship to the whole Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible. So first, how does this story relate to the promised land? When Christians go to the Old Testament, and to the law of Moses in particular, and try to draw out concrete economic lessons, often they get themselves in trouble. There are economic principles we can, we can glean, but we always have to keep in mind that the land in Israel functioned in a very specific way. You heard it here in this text that the land was allotted to each of the 12 tribes by lot, that is by God's divine apportionment. Now, however sacred you think your home or your possession is, it was not given by the direct, explicit command of God. But that's what we're dealing with here with the promised land. There's a reference here to the year of Jubilee. Perhaps some of you have studied that before. The year of Jubilee was that 50th year when all of the land would return to their original landowners, to the original inheritance of the tribe. Some of them may have fallen on hard times, may have had to sell some of the land to others, but the idea was this possession, which God himself has assigned to you, shall be yours in perpetuity. It was, after all, the promised land. God gives the land to his people because they are his treasured possession. At the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, he calls them a treasured possession. So because the Lord owns his people, then he puts them in this land, which is as God's possession now to be given as their possession. The people possess the land because God possesses the people. So it is imperative that all the people have some part of the land and that every family has an inheritance. The idea was, even if you fell on hard times, ultimately, the faithful Israelite could not lose 
his, or we see here with the daughters, her, inheritance that God had given to them. Now, this is jumping ahead to some of the conclusion, but I hope you can see one of the spiritual lessons here in the promised land. They, once God gave them the promise of their inheritance, they were never to lose that inheritance. So it is with us. You cannot lose the inheritance that God Himself gives to you, that promise of eternal life for all those who are in Christ, which is why it was so cataclysmic when later in their history they are kicked out of the land. It was repeating the same sort of offense that happened in the Garden of Eden. One of the ways to understand the Bible is God's people are constantly getting kicked out of places. So they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They're banished. And multiple times in Genesis, you hear the refrain, east of Eden. We all live east of Eden in a spiritual sense. And then they're given this land, but they squander after many, many years of disobedience, and they're sent into exile in Babylon and are brought back. And now in the church, this language of expulsion or banishment is not physical land, but Paul uses to explain how we exercise church discipline in the church. I just started a few weeks ago back in Charlotte uh, a series on the book of Leviticus. And I'm saying every single week that Leviticus is about how a holy God can dwell in the midst of an unholy people. That's what the storyline of the Bible is about. So here you have in the Pentateuch, God in the midst of the tabernacle, inhabiting, dwelling in the midst of an unholy people. But He has apportioned to them this inheritance, which is to be theirs forever. So here's the problem in Numbers 27, the first passage we read. You can understand it. What if the man has no sons? In that culture, the land is given by inheritance to the sons. So no sons, no heirs. No heirs no land. And if you have no heirs and no land, then your name will be blotted out. The name of Zelophehad will be gone. You'll never hear of the family Zelophehad. It'll be gone by the accident, as it were, that he just happened to have no boys and had girls. And so his five daughters come and say to Moses, that doesn't seem right. And the Lord says to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. Transfer the inheritance to them. Notice, this is really amazing, not just that they can live in it, but actually legally transfer the legal right to the daughters. So one of the reasons this is mentioned so prominently in the Old Testament is you can understand that this would have been a frequent issue what do we do? We didn't have kids, or we, we, we only had daughters. What happens to the land? And so this was the first test case, the legal precedent. And that's why it goes on in chapter 27 to say, well, if you have no daughters, then you give to the father's brothers. And if you don't have them, then you keep going near and down, down the line to find the closest kin. You think of the story of Ruth looking for that kinsman redeemer, same principle there. So, 
First, sons. If you have no sons, it goes to the daughters. If you don't have daughters, then it goes to various uncles or brothers or nephews, males down the line. But the principle is clear. Keep the land in the clan. To the sons first, then the daughters, then to the nearest male relative. That's what chapter 27 is about. Now, what about chapter 36? So chapter 27, the problem is, what if dad has only daughters, who gets the land? The problem in chapter 36 is what if the daughters, all right, we've already established that, but what if the daughters who have now been given the inheritance marry outside the clan because the land is going to get passed down according to the male heirs? So here's what happens. The the daughters of Zelophehad are from the tribe of Manasseh. All right, very well and good. Zelophehad has no sons. It goes to the daughters. But what if these daughters go and marry a man from the tribe of Judah? Well, then the inheritance is going to get passed on, and as it goes to their sons, it's going to belong to Judah. And God's original allotment, which was meant for Manasseh, is going to go over, and it's going to get all mixed up. That's what's going to happen. So here's the solution in chapter 37. The daughters, it says, can marry whomever they want. That's a pretty remarkable statement to make for women in the ancient world, and surely it was in consultation with with parents and all the rest, but still a remarkable statement. They, They can marry, but they need to marry within the clan. Perhaps a spiritual application can be for your daughters. Yes, you're going to make a choice who you want to marry, but as Paul tells us, you need to marry in Christ. Well, here, it's physically within the clan. You can marry whom you want, but you have to stay in the tribe of Manasseh because if you go out to Issachar, Zebulun, or Judah, then all of the land allotment is going to get confused. So chapter 27 and chapter 36 with the daughters of Zelophehad established two key principles for Israel and the legal transfer of land. Principle number one, the daughters are made legal heirs when there are no sons. And principle number two, but when that happens, the daughters must marry within their two tribes. With these two statutes, God ensures that no family will be ultimately dispossessed of the promised land. God was, was thinking this through, giving the word to Moses. He didn't want any family through circumstances they couldn't control. Couldn't control if they didn't have kids. Couldn't control if they didn't have sons. Through no fault of their own, they should not have to forfeit the inheritance that was theirs by divine right. That's what chapter 27 and chapter 36 establishes. So there's the first category to help you understand why this is in here, why it's so important, because it has to do with the legal transfer of the land. Second category. So that's looking here. Let's go out a little wider lens and think about the whole book of Numbers. Numbers. You already know this because of the title. Numbers is about numbers. (laughs) It's called Numbers because there are two censuses there. So if you turn, you can see this in... Chapter 1, it begins, a census of Israel's warriors is the heading in the ESV, and it goes on with a a long chapter, tribe by tribe, counting all of the military men. 
And then if you look in chapter 26, you see the second census. So the heading in the ESV, chapter 26, census of the new generation. So Numbers is a tale of two generations, one that died because of unbelief, that's in chapters 1 through 25. Do you remember why they died? They died because they didn't have faith enough to go into the promised land. And when they sent the spies and the spies came back and they said, whoa, the people are huge. They're, they're giants. They're like Dutch people all over the place. I'm Dutch. I resemble that remark we always had up on our fridge growing up, just a little newspaper clipping that the Dutch were the tallest people in the world, which is why we can say if you ain't Dutch... You ain't much. That's right. You all know it. (laughs) So they said, these people are huge. It's intimidating. They didn't have faith enough. They rebelled. And because they were that rebellious generation, God says, you're not going to make it. Except we got the the two faithful spies, uh, Caleb and Joshua. But the rest of you, we're going to wait till you die in the wilderness. So that's why chapter 26 says a census of the new generation. So this new generation is going to face its own test of faith because they haven't yet made it into the promised land. So generation number one starts with the census. They didn't make it. They all have to die. Generation number two starts with the census. In the middle, so it's not directly halves as we count it, but these are the two halves in numbers. So chapter 1 through 25, in the middle of each half is an event where the people are hesitant to enter the promised land. So in the middle of the first half, chapters 1 through 25, I already mentioned it, is the spy story in Numbers 13 and 14. So in the middle of this section, Numbers 13 and 14, the spies go in, I don't think we can make it. They rebel. They don't have faith to go into the promised land. But there's a second story, and it occurs in the second half. Turn to Numbers chapter 32. Lesser known, of course, but this deals with the request of Reuben and Gad to settle in Gilead on the far side of the Jordan. And you see the heading, Reuben and Gad settle in Gilead. God punished the people in the first half because that was a flagrant act of unbelief. But here, He allows the Reubenites and the Gadites to settle in Gilead, but He warns them. In essence, He says, you better help your brothers get into the promised land because remember what happened last time you refused to enter. That's what happens in chapter 32. They say on the other side of the Jordan, ah, this looks really good land. Can we live here? And God says, okay, you can, but you got to go help the rest of your brothers get into the promised land. This can't be a repeat of what happened before, and you're too chicken to get into the promised land. But I'll let you stay here. So in both halves of Numbers, there is an incident where God's people want to stay and not go in the promised land. After the first generation refused, God consigned them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation was dead. We read in chapter 25, 9, there were 24,000 killed in a plague because of the rebellion there. And then the next census takes place, but it does not include those in the first census. So we read in Numbers 26, 
64, but among these there, were not, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. So that generation gone, this is the next generation. The lesson, however, is the same. It is going to take faith to enter the promised land. It is going to take faith to move from your comfortable position to the new place that God has given to you. Obviously, He doesn't give you this building by the same divine fiat that that He did for Israel, but I hope you can see the connection. It takes faith to move out into a new stage of life and journeying and ministry one that you were used to, one that was comfortable to something new. Well, here in the second half of Numbers, they've yet to enter that promised land. They're waiting, and they're being tested. The second part of Numbers is deliberately bookended by the Zelophehad story. So notice the census, the second one, chapter 26, Zelophehad story, chapter 27, second Zelophehad story, chapter 36. So the second half is bookended by the daughters of Zelophehad. And some of the commentators say, well, that's strange. It was tying up loose ends, or there was no purpose, or it was some later redactor. But actually, the two episodes are formed this way quite deliberately. Because what do the stories at the beginning of this section and the end tell us. What do we see with the daughters of Zelophehad? They display some gutsy faith. In contrast to the first generation, which was too afraid to take their possession that God had given them, these women have gutsy faith. First of all, they approach the sacred place before Moses and Eleazar and the chiefs and all the people. They don't do so in any sinful way. They don't break any any laws or statutes, but you can imagine this would have been a fearful thing for any man to do in that context in particular for these women to do. Maybe they're elbowing, should we? we?" Yeah, yeah, you go. Noah, you got a boy's name. (laughs) (laughs) You go, Tirza. However they do it, they all go to all of the leaders. Remember, there may be as many as two million Israelites by this point. It's not like you see Moses all the time. It's not even, you know, a church of hundreds of people and you can see your path. This is a big deal. We're going to go to Moses, Aaron, Eliezer, the chiefs, and they're going to bring this request. We don't think it's right that our father should be forgotten and no one of his clan get the inheritance. Some people want to make the daughters of Zelophehad into the first feminists, but that's not accurate. They are, after all, concerned entirely about the name of their father. So the demand isn't for some kind of equality, though equality is certainly good in many contexts. But what are they pleading? Their uppermost concern is their family. And they say, our father, did you notice that in chapter 27? Our father Verse 3, chapter 27, verse 3, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. He died for his own sin. In other words, he, he wasn't punished. He wasn't an apostate. He wasn't a rebel. He just died like everyone dies because of sin. 
because of the curse. He wasn't a rebel, and so he doesn't deserve to have his name expunged and blotted out. They plead for the sake of their family. So feminists, no. Fearless, yes. These are strong women, women who aren't afraid for the right reason in the right context to stand up for themselves. Most of all, they're believing women. They're obedient women. They obey God's commands. In chapter 37, yes, we will do as you say. We will marry within our own tribe. And they believe the promises of God, unlike that first generation, which was too scared and doubted the promises of God. These women come at the beginning and the end of this second half of Numbers to say, we, you know what their assumption is, we know we're going to be in the promised land. That's why we're already thinking ahead about what's going to happen to our father's land and who's going to get it. They're not there yet. They have none of this. This takes great faith, gutsy faith, which is why Moses, I think, bookends this second half of Numbers, not only for the legal precedent, but to help show the people, okay, as you're getting ready to come in, this is the sort of gutsy God can do whatever He wants and give this to us faith that you need. So land numbers one other lens, and that's to see how this relates to the entire Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. There are a lot of themes which tie together the first five books of the Bible. We tend to read them individually, but they were a part of a a five-volume best-selling series. And one of the themes that ties all five books together is this hope of the promised land. Hope you have your Bibles open. I want to just show you this quickly, or if you can't get there quickly, you can just jot it down or listen. But have you ever noticed each book of the Pentateuch ends with a geographic designation to point out that God's people are not yet in the promised land. Go go to the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50, verse 24, the very end of the book, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin. Where? In Egypt. He's looking ahead. Someday you're going to get there, and you're going to bring my bones up there, but we're not there yet. Genesis ends very deliberately. Where are we? Well, we're still in Egypt. Look at the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, the glory fills the tabernacle, and yet surprisingly, Moses is not able to enter into it, which is why we have the book of Leviticus, because the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, but without the sacrificial system, without a means of atonement, even Moses does not deserve to enter in. But notice what we read, very last verse, 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Genesis ends, uh, we're in Egypt. Exodus ends, we're journeying, we're wandering. We don't have a home yet. Go to Leviticus chapter 27, verse 34. The end of this book also gives a marker, Leviticus 27, 34. These are the commandments 
that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So that's in the Horeb Peninsula, not yet in the Promised Land. And then go to Deuteronomy. We'll come back to Numbers. Deuteronomy 34, you may know, gives the death of Moses. And we read in Deuteronomy 34, verse 4, And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. He doesn't go in. He, does, he gets to see it from a mountain, but he's not there. Very deliberately, Genesis ends. Where are God's people? Egypt. Exodus, where are we? Journeying. Leviticus, where are we? We're on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy, where's Moses? He's on Moab. Each one, a geographic designation to remind them, you have not yet entered in. The promised land It's not yet yours. So go back to the very end of Numbers, and we see the same thing. Last verse, these are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel. Where are they? In the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, ah, at Jericho. The last word in both English and in Hebrew is Jericho. If you know your Bible, you know when you get to Joshua and they enter the promised land and the trumpets and the marching around and the shouting, they enter into the promised land through that city, Jericho. So any, any Israelite reading this, hearing this story told, there's a bit of excitement, a bit of elbowing, mom, mom, dad, remember, I know, I know that place, Jericho. See, the book of Numbers seems to finish with an anticlimax. Oh, a bit of case law to tidy up around the edges, daughters of Zelophehad. But do you see how it ends this way purposefully and it ends this way open-ended? The question that God's people were meant to ask is, all right, new generation, what are you going to do? The first generation blew it. They wandered. They died. But here you are after 40 years, and you're on the cusp of Canaan again. There's Jericho. Will you have faith to take possession of it? Faith like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Will you have faith like the daughters of Zelophehad? The book of Numbers, you may notice, has many stories of rebellion with the spies, with Korah, with Balaam, with the Baal of Peor. But it ends on a note of this cautious optimism. Here are these women tenaciously holding on to the promises of God, even when their personal circumstances are less than favorable. They point the way toward the right response. The first generation, doubt and refuse. Second generation, these daughters show the way. Trust and obey And this is true for God's people at all times, whether on a new, exciting day such as today, you've been here for a few weeks, but now officially dedicating this new space filled with anticipation and filled to overflowing this morning and excited about all that God might do through you and and to you and with you. 
What does it look like? What is required of you? What is God asking of you in this next step? It's what He has always been asking of His people as they approach something new. Do you doubt and refuse or do you trust and obey? And ultimately, of course, the inheritance is not finally a building. The inheritance is that eternal life, that salvation that we have only in Christ. And so we would be remiss if we use this story of the daughters of Zelophehad to only fix our attention on dedicating a building and we didn't think about whether we have really dedicated our own lives to Christ. For the, the inheritance that He means to give us that is forever. We just had a funeral. Well, we have a lot of, we have a, a big church and there's a lot of funerals and usually it's, it's uh, seniors and elderly and that has a sadness to it, but there's a, a certain natural rhythm of life and then sometimes you have other sorts of funerals. We had a funeral a few weeks ago of a 24-year-old who died in a car accident. The Lord has sustained his, his parents with remarkable faith and hope in the midst of a sort of tragedy that no parent ever wants to face. And, and part of what has given them such hope is just six or seven weeks before his death, he had really for the first serious time given his life to Christ and was telling people at his workplace about Christ and was so eager to be in Christ and learn about Christ and tell people about Christ. And so in the midst of unbelievable sadness, that has given them such great hope that the Lord did what was obviously a work of grace in his heart just weeks before he died. No, no one thinks they're going to die at 24 years old. You don't think that at 44 or 64 or really 74, you, you, you don't think that it's coming soon. And yet none of us know when we will have to cross that Jordan. None of us know how close we may be to either God's just judgment or to that promised land awaiting our inheritance. That's why it takes faith. That's why Hebrews 11 emphasizes over and over again faith. Every one of those persons in Hebrews 11 had to live by faith. They had not received all that had been promised to them. You, in this wonderful church, you have not received all that God has promised to you. That's why you're not satisfied. That's why you can't be happy all the time because you're made for something more. You're longing for something more. You'll only be satisfied with something more. To be sure, He's given us such good gifts, and He gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we have not yet received all of the inheritance. And the book of Numbers shows us how to fail. How do you fail as God's people? You chicken out. You give up. Say, it's not worth it. The giants are too big. We can't get it. God could never deliver on His promises. And Numbers shows us how to succeed, which is simply to take God at His word. Gutsy confidence. Can you see Jericho in the distance? Maybe just in a way of the ministry God is going to have you here give to you in this new place, or, or, or perhaps... Some of you sense your time on earth may be coming to a close. Can you see Jericho? I just love how the book ends with 
Jericho. It's right there. The promised land. This is true. Every one of us, no matter how old you are, the promised land is closer today for you than it was yesterday. Don't turn around. Don't give up now. Don't doubt what God can do for you. No one loves this church as much as God. Jesus has gone ahead. He has suffered the pain for our rebellion. He's watching and waiting, preparing a place for us. Keep going. There is an everlasting inheritance on the other side. Let me just close with this. I was, you know, we moved to, I'm a Midwestern boy originally, and we moved from Michigan five and a half years ago and getting ourselves acclimated to the South. And one of the the, the historic churches in, in the Carolinas is First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, dates to 1795. Sinclair Ferguson was the pastor there recently. Derek Thomas, you may know of him as well with Ligonier. He's the pastor there now. Their current church building, just a little older than this one, was dedicated in 1853. <laughs> and the pastor at the time, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, went on to be one of the great Presbyterian preachers in the South said this in his dedication sermon. He talks at first about all the the glories of the building and how impressive and how excited they are about this new place that the Lord has arisen. But then he says, that is not to be the glory. Let its glory, speaking of the building, let its glory rather be found in the purity, soundness, and unction of its pastors in the fidelity and watchfulness of its elders, in the piety and godliness of its members. Let its glory be as a birthplace of souls, where shall always be heard the sobs of awakened penitence and the songs of newborn love. Let its glory be the spirituality of its worship, its fervent prayers, its adoring praise, and the simplicity and truth of its ordinances and sacraments. Let its glory be the communion of saints, who here have fellowship one with another and also with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, let its glory be as the resting place of weary pilgrims toiling on toward the heavenly city, the emblem of that church above where congregations never break up and the Sabbaths never end. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, You have done good to us. Surely the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, and now we ask that through the Lord Jesus and by Your Spirit working through the Word, You would give to us faith that we may trust and obey for whatever months, years You have given to us on our earthly pilgrimage, whatever decades, generations, centuries perhaps for this church. We pray that we might walk with you in confidence and faith, knowing that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.